For a variety of reasons, many black, Latino, Native American, and other minorities had high rates of COVID contracting it and also getting hospitalized than the average. Last summer, my next guest decided to do something about it. He's the director of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute at the NIH, and he's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program, Dr. Gary Gibbons. Dr. Gibbons, good to have you on. Thank you very much for having me. And we should also note that your co-recipient of this award could not be with us this morning. That's Dr. Alicio Perez-Stable, and he's the director of the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities, so your co-recipient there. But first of all, set the scene for us. What was the issue that you identified among certain communities at the height of the pandemic? Well, Tom, as you remember, uh, a year ago, over a year ago now, in the early spring of 2020, it was clear that COVID-19 was devastating and disrupting our whole society. But there were certain communities that were even more disproportionately affected and adversely affected by this pandemic. Indeed, it really laid bare health disparities that have been long existing with those most vulnerable communities really getting the brunt of the pandemic's impact. Those involved communities of color that you alluded to, African-American, American Indian, uh, Latino communities that had twofold higher risks of hospitalizations, uh, deaths, and that related in part to a couple of factors, some of which we call the social determinants of health. Those communities often have uh, workers who are essential in the front lines and therefore highly exposed to the virus, whether it's because they work in grocery stores or the transportation industry or hospitality industry, they came in contact with the virus and, quite frankly, were vulnerable in not having the protection. And so that's where that greatest burden was born. They also had difficulty accessing testing and treatments and so forth. And so that's where we felt that as part of the overall response of the NIH to COVID-19, that a critical element of that response would involve an important community engagement of those communities to see what we could do to enable and empower them to protect themselves. And that's what led to the launch of the two programs, the NIH Community Engagement Alliance Against COVID-19 Disparities, or the SEAL program, as well as a, a more targeted program focused on testing All right, we'll get into the details of those programs, but I just had a follow-up question. These populations that we've been discussing, there's also a historic maybe reluctance on some of those people's parts to come near the medical community or to seek the help they need because of, uh, I guess you could call it a trust issue, correct? Yeah, it's an important point, Tom. This, again, evolves out of really, again, many years in which many of these communities have developed a certain mistrust that, quite frankly, has some legitimacy in terms of their own personal experiences with racial discrimination when they interface with the health system, perhaps in an emergency room, where they don't feel as though they've been treated equitably. And indeed, research has confirmed uh, some of those impressions. And so that tends to hinder a rapid trust and uptake of new either treatments or engagement in a context of a pandemic like this. So you're absolutely correct. Similarly, your audience is probably aware of sort of historical research done by the government, actually. The Tuskegee syphilis study is the most famous in which the research community also failed some of these same communities in an exploitative way that, again, eroded trust. And so it's in the context of those where we need to do research and ensure that the the scientific benefits reach these communities, all in the midst of the same pandemic, given those historical legacy issues. 
We're speaking with Dr. Gary Gibbons, director of the Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute at the NIH, and along with Dr. Alicio Perez-Stable, a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And tell us about these two programs, the SEAL program and the RADx Up, that were devised for NIH to attack these problems. Tell us about, let's start with the SEAL program. Sure. Well, SEAL, the Community Engaged Alliance Against COVID-19 Disparities, is really a community-centered response to ensure that the hardest-hit communities have, number one, accurate information, and two, access to the fruits of COVID research that ultimately resulted in vaccines, and to ensure that the products of that research, like vaccines, effectively is taken up in a way that eventually prevents the ongoing spread of the pandemic in those communities uh, and as part of the overall strategy to crush COVID-19 in this country. And so clearly a key part of that was developing partnerships and alliances designed to meet people where they are, at the front lines, at the grassroots, and engage trusted messengers who live and work and play and and worship in those communities uh, to convey that accurate information and, again, try to address both mistrust and misinformation that was, quite frankly, quite rampant last summer and fall. Interestingly, this seems to borrow in part a page from the Census Bureau, which also has outreach to specific communities that often don't speak English or it's not their native language, such that they have faith in the fact that the census is being conducted in an equitable, fair way, and they've got nothing to worry about. Good point again, Tom. And often it helps if the individuals who are literally knocking on doors or meeting them where they are look like them and are part of their community. I think that engenders that sense of trust and perhaps resonance with those messages because they are familiar individuals. They're maybe a local pastor, a local doctor, or neighbor. And so that's what these teams of researchers and coalitions with community-based organizations, faith-based organizations, really rank-and-file grassroots organizations that are already known in those communities that are then mobilized toward this effort of public health protection of that community. I think that's a key part of being able to engage them. And once they are engaged, then you have the RADx Up program. And tell us about that one. Yeah, so RADx Up is really to get sort of rapid movement of diagnostic. That's really part of the RAD part of it. And recognizing that there's some barriers related to accessing things like testing and contact tracing and eventually other forms of access to care. And so RADx Up involved the NIH effort to fund over 70 community-engaged research projects designed to address how can we overcome those barriers of mistrust and dissemination. And so for one uh, example for RADx Up, to make available testing through social networks of people so uh, that indeed if you find that your neighbor is getting tested, you're a bit more likely behaviorally to be nudged into getting tested yourself and addressing any fears or concerns related to or understanding the logistics of navigating a system. And so both RADx Up and SEAL uh, use those sort of uh, local navigators, if you will, and champions to advance the uptake of these beneficial technologies and treatments. And now a year on, do you have evidence that this all worked for those communities? Well, these are still early days in our program evaluation, but what I think is fair to say 
is that when we launched these efforts, particularly SEAL in last fall, the level of hesitancy amongst African Americans was quite substantial. Only 40% said that they would take the vaccine if shown to be safe and effective, and that was far lower than uh, whites at, at that time, uh, which were in the 60s, or, or, or that's clearly the majority. Uh, that gap is almost shrunk to less than 10, if not zero now, some six months later. And we believe that reflects this kind of multi-level, full-court press, if you will, of messaging uh, both at the national level with leaders like uh, Dr. Fauci and the Surgeon General, but as well at this local level where these same messages are being carried, as you say, by trusted local messengers, whether it's their congressperson or their pastor or their local doctor, who they already have trusted relationships with. And we believe that that change uh, is reflective of that sort of multi-pronged effort. Dr. Gary Gibbons is director of the Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute at the NIH, and along with Dr. Alicio Perez-Stable, he's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. It's really been my pleasure, Tom. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style. You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is to lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here, and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned 
that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. 
So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.